0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. The title to this one, The Showdown. You guys have to admit that sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? I almost called it the Rat Tooth Showdown, but I, and I asked Leslie this morning, I said, so which one? Do you think it should be The Showdown or The Rat Tooth Showdown? She says, well, uh, the rat-tooth showdown is definitely more interesting. And I said, but it's disgusting, right? She goes, yes, it's rather <laughs> disgusting. So, so as not to scare people off, uh, I just t- titled it the showdown. But what's interesting is the idea of a showdown is, is fascinating to, uh, to humans. They always like it when two things against each other and there's a vying for preeminence. And there's something just fascinating about it. It's like driving down the road and there's an accident, and it's called curiosity slowing. Everyone starts to slow down. The same is true with a showdown. Everyone's just fascinated with a showdown. And in the scriptures, this idea of a showdown is actually a big deal throughout history, where the powers of darkness stand against the powers of light. And the question is, which one's greater? And by the way, just as a heads up, God has never lost that battle. And if you, you could test it in your own basement, uh, you know, turn off all the lights and then, you know, say, okay, we're going to have a showdown. I'm going to turn on the light and see if the darkness can still stand. And just watch. The darkness will always lose. And this is just the principle of the world in which we live, that light is greater, you know that darkness actually in and of itself has no substance. You know, If you tried to measure it, if you tried to study what darkness is, it's merely the absence of something. That's all it is. It's the absence of light. And when you study death, there's really no matter to it. There's nothing you can really measure. It's just the absence of something. It's the absence of life. And so when the light moves in, it is substantial. It has substance. It can be measured. It has something to it. And life has a very real power to it. And so to side with the light and to side with the life is a very wise idea. But we live in a world that cherishes their darkness and actually doesn't want to see the light. They don't want to be awakened from their slumber. Isn't that a funny quality? It's like, please leave me asleep. I prefer my deadened state. And that's the great challenge we face is how do you communicate the message of light to a generation that doesn't want to see it? And we could say, well, are you sure they don't want to see it? Well, God is the one that warms their soul. Oftentimes, Someone has to come to a place of desperation before they start to hunger and to thirst for that which they truly need in their life for salvation. And so God is the author and the finisher of this thing called faith. He's very good at this thing called salvation. We are participants though. And God, you know, as most of us have thought in our own mind, God can just do whatever he wants. He could save someone without my involvement And yet, he desires and delights to actually utilize us. And that's part of what this showdown is, is us as the church of Jesus Christ standing in this gap and saying, hey, world, there is a God in the heavens. Watch my life, and you will see the proof of it. And I've heard all sorts of stories over the years, and some of them I can Maybe prove, and some of them I can't. It's one of the frustrating things about some of the great stories in history. It's like, oh, that's a great story, and then you try and look it up, and you can't find it anywhere. It's like, where did that come from? You don't know if some pastor just one day was like, hey, here's a cool story. I'll make it up. I I, I don't know where do these stories come from. But there was this story that I remember hearing growing up about uh, this missionary uh, during the plague in uh, Africa, and. Everyone was so paranoid about the plague, so he says, just to show you that I am secured by the shed blood of Jesus, I want you to put uh, this plague on my skin, uh, put a drop of it on my skin, and then put it under a microscope and watch what happens. And they did, and it just like shrivels up. And I was like, oh, what a great story. I could never find any reference to it. But it's like, oh, that's good. That's a showdown uh, right there. And that's the concept, though. And I've had a lot of ideas of showdowns in my mind where I've sort of prepped my soul for the showdown. Uh, I had this one idea of me being on Larry King Live. Uh, I don't know if Larry King is around anymore, but that was like the big talk show back in the day with one of those contrarian Christians that's on the opposite end of the spectrum and always diminishing the integrity of the Bible and the person of Jesus. And, and you know, so we're both on the Larry King live show, and, and we're both sharing our position that I believe this is the word of God. I believe it is truth. And this other guy's saying, it's just the words of men. And he goes, guys, you're both calling yourselves Christians, but you contradict each other all the time. How could I, as a Jew, actually trust that there's any validity to this thing known as Christianity if even the Christians themselves contradict each other when they're looking at the same text? And you have to admit, it's a, it's a pretty good question, right? So I, I could say something like, uh, Larry, I, I appreciate that question. You know, I, I, I can totally understand why you have it. But just to demonstrate that there is only one truth, uh, I'm going to just declare that whichever one of us is... Uh, is telling lies and speaking falsehood, uh, their lips will be sealed until they repent of their position. And then suddenly the other guy, his lips seal up, he's like, on, on national television. It's like, no, okay, that would be cool. So I've prepped myself for such situations because that's what we could call a showdown. It's like, how do we convince someone with just words? And it's not just words. In fact, the Bible is very clear. It's not just words. There is something that is needed to bring that convincing wave upon an audience, and that is something known as power. And yet most of us in the church today really don't know much about that. And we're like, what do I do with that? Uh, Power. I need power. What is that? And so we're going to at least dip our toe into that this morning, because when you head to Irian Jaya, Papua New Guinea, you better have something that you're toting along with you. You need the power of God if you're going to win these natives to Christ. So the power of God. As Christians, we are saved by it, we walk in it, and we demonstrate it as the convincing proof of our message. And I could say it this way, according to Paul, this is the case. You see, it's the power of God unto salvation is, is the gospel, right? And then we walk in it. How are you supposed to do what you're supposed to do? You do it by grace, which is the power of God working in you. So that the way that you do show love, the way that you demonstrate kindness, the way that you are able to forgive is because you have power to do it. And that's what grace is. But then this third dimension is a little foggy to many of us. And I just have to admit, this is, you know, when you're in North America, and you start talking about And then we demonstrate it as the convincing proof of our message. Well, back in the book of Acts, they did this all the time. And they would raise dead people to life, you know, just things like that that are a little more challenging for us to whip up, right? It's like, what is that? Am I supposed to do that? Well, instead of getting off in the weeds with this of saying, okay, we all need to raise dead people to life. One of the things we do need to understand is that we are meant to showcase something in our lives, and that is something the world cannot do. We live lives in such a way that is supposed to startle the world. When you typically punch someone in the nose, what's a human response? You know, well, you could break down and cry, that's, that's one option, uh, if you're the guy getting punched, right? And, or you could punch back. And so there's, there's human responses that are very normal. But when a Christian is bopped in the nose, they have something. And this is what we could call a demonstration of power. And that is that they can show in that situation a completely otherworldly response. And they can look back and love. And they can look back and speak words of kindness. And they can care about the person that just bopped them in the nose as opposed to get upset with them. And so even though that doesn't involve raising someone from the dead, it does involve the same power that raises someone from the dead. And so for those of us that are more at the elementary school level of thinking about power, maybe we start there. And we say, this is the showdown. Every time the enemy strikes, we have the opportunity to demonstrate a greater power in how we even respond. By the way, I'm not against dead people rising. I'm not against that, so I'm not trying to diminish what God may want to do in this generation. I'm just saying that many of us fast forward or skip a whole bunch of application of these truths to get to more grand things like multiplying fishes and loaves and raising dead people to life and walking on water. And I would say, though those are demonstrations of power and Jesus wielded them, we oftentimes need to recognize that most of living out out of Christianity is at a very mundane level. But it nonetheless startles the world and causes them to question what we have. What is that in that person? And that is a proof to them that there is a very genuine working of grace inside of us. That there is a God in the heavens. So let's look at Paul as he brings this topic up multiple times. So here we are in 1 Corinthians 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling, and my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, of course, we've probably all read this scripture. It doesn't totally make sense to us, right? It's like Paul who is a very eloquent man. Paul, what's wrong with you here? What's happened to you? You went from being the Pharisee of Pharisees and this stout uh, figure in, uh, in Israel to being this pathetic lump. I mean, come on, what are you doing here? There's something about this that Paul recognizes that the way that Corinth is going to change is not from his eloquence, but it's actually from power. So he's willing to appear weak. He's willing to be weak, so that through him, God could demonstrate his strength. See, when you use the word power in the New Testament, you, you need to recognize that there's two different versions of it. There's a legal power, and there's a muscular power, the power of a military. And so you're going, it's translated the same thing, so we don't oftentimes see it, but what word is typically being used when we're talking about a demonstration is actually the military strength. It's not just the legal strength. For instance, you according to the power of God, have been adopted as sons and daughters. Well, but that's a legal power, according to the shed blood of Christ of what he has done for us. But in this, that there is a power, there is a push, there is a strength, there's an oomph that is given to us to actually showcase something. Paul was given oomph, even though he's weak, to show something of great strength that wasn't him. Everyone knew he's weak. Look at him physically. He's small. He's sure, He's a he's he's little diddly squat munchkin. And yet through his life is coming something so much bigger than what a little munchkin could pull off. What is this? And that's why Paul needed to be weak. In a strange sense, his fumbling words are part of the proof because it wasn't in his articulation. It was in his demonstration. First Corinthians 2, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches comparing spiritual things with spiritual. 1 Corinthians 1, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. 1 Corinthians 4, 20, the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. So you have to recognize when you're dealing with a communicator like me, in some ways, I wish it was in word because it seems to make a little more sense to me when it's in word, but it's in power? The way that this kingdom is transferred is not just through the spoken word, even though God does use the spoken word. He does it in and through a transfer of power, which we understand is the Holy Spirit. In other words, he is convincing people, but not always through the the means that we would think. It's not just argument, human argument. It's like, okay, if I could just convince them. But God is going to do something at a different level. When, when I've tried to articulate what preaching is to people and the difference between preaching and teaching, it's somewhat difficult to do, but if, if, if any of you were in athletics and you ever pulled a muscle and you ever had that, we used to call it icy hot, but it had like this mentholatum type of a thing in it. And is that what it was, mentholatum? I don't know if that's the right word for it. Uh, it was, it's like this cold or hot uh, type of thing that gets on your muscle. And so teaching is sort of like just rubbing it on the outside of your skin. And you feel it, it's there, but preaching is like taking a hot uh, cloth, like wet hot cloth and sticking it over that uh, icy hot and it drives it deep into the muscle. And that's what preaching is. Preaching is reaching this part of you that is so much deeper than what teaching can reach. It's speaking to the spirit man. And that is where the convincing is taking place. Your mind could be like, I refuse to accept Jesus Christ, and the Spirit of God is going to bypass that and hit you in your spirit, man, and awaken you. And suddenly you're like, what's happening to me? And you find yourself crying, and you're thinking, I I refuse Jesus, and you're crying the whole time. You're like, something's happening inside of you. God is breaking you apart from inside, saying, all right, you're melting now. No longer do you have the resistance. I'm after you. And so as a result, we're going to call that power. That's not words, that's power. And this is how God wins all of us. God didn't just win us through a convincing argument. He won us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Romans 15, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus in the things which pertain to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, "...resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and around about Elicrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And so I have made it my aim to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, lest I should build on another man's foundation." So I don't know how many of us would have the same testimony that, yes, and so I've spent the past week going around uh, Windsor and winning people, uh, not in the words I spoke, but in and through a demonstration of mighty power in miracles and deeds. It's like, that is just like not what we're used to describing Christianity as. And so as a result, it can be a little awkward as we touch on these things in Scripture, And that's why you see me bringing it down to the elementary school level. It's like, hey, let's start here with God changing these lives and beginning to demonstrate supernatural function and let that grow up in whatever way God would have it grow up. But it starts with us behaving as Christians in the midst of hostility, forgiving in a situation which doesn't deserve any forgiveness, of showing love in a situation that is very unloving. And when we begin to live this way, we are showcasing a power. There is no way any human could ever do this. At the same time, that is a seedling form of something else. And that is a greater showing of the power of God. And if you're going to go to Irian Jaya, where you have witch doctors and shamans who are defying you, you need to know the power in which you walk, and you need to demonstrate it in your life. There's a showdown on the horizon, and all throughout, you know, every missionary story that's coming into these tribal villages, that's exactly what they're being prepared for. 1 Thessalonians five: our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. The spiritual showdown, clearly demonstrating the power of God proving the greater power, a smattering of great showdowns throughout history. There's some great ones. Uh, So I'm just going to give you a smattering. The first one on the list is the Job showdown. That's what the book of Job is. Job is a showdown. And so you have the devil calling into question God and his ways and with his servants. That if he, he wasn't just protecting his servants and putting this bubble around them, you know, they wouldn't be all well-behaved like Job is. You take that protection from around him, and you're going to find out that he'll curse you. I mean, let's just give it a test. And guess what? God says, go ahead. We'll remove it. Watch what my son will do. I mean, it's it's a powerful story when you look at it from that lens. Now, you also need to realize that Job is a picture of Christ. And so, just like every one of these stories, but... The, the name Job uh, is Yob in the Hebrew, which means hated and despised. Isn't that the worst name you've ever heard of a mom giving to her son? It's like, oh, how coochie-coo. You are hated and despised. It's like, what kind of name is that? And then he's from Utz, U-Z, right, Utz. And you know what that defi- is defined as? The place of wood. Hated and despised, the place of wood. Who does that remind you of? Okay, we're talking about a picture of something which is the greatest showdown of all of history, which is the cross. Jesus comes naked, humble, weak, against all the powers of the devil, and we measure the two against each other. God in his weakness against the enemy in all of his power. Who's gonna win? Lean in, guys. Let's see. Well, we already know the answer to that one, right? Remember, I, I said at the very beginning, I know it's somewhat of a spoiler, but God always wins the Moses showdown. We went through this when we were teaching in class canon. That was a showdown. You have Korah and his his cronies that are standing against Moses and Aaron, and there's a showdown. Who has the authority to rule in Israel? They're going to stick the rods in the sanctuary overnight, and Aaron's rod is going to bud Blossom and bear almonds overnight. The ground is going to open up and swallow Korah and his his buddies alive. It's like, whoa! Yeah, it was a showdown, all right. The Elijah showdown of, on the top of Mount Carmel. Do you guys remember that? So all the prophets of Baal, and, and Elijah says, all right, the God that answers my fire, let him be God. And so all the prophets of Baal spend all day, you know, cutting themselves, doing their little dances, and nothing happens. And then uh, it even says, and Elijah mocked them. I mean, could you imagine he's one guy against like 750. It's like, oh, keep your mouth shut, Elijah. That's dangerous. This guy knows the power of God. And so then he dumps all the water on the altar. And you guys know the story. I mean, it's a good story. And fire comes down from heaven. And then the people of Israel say, the Lord, he is the God. It was the power of God that convinced them that he was Jehovah. The Davidic showdown, David-Goliath. Oh, good moment in history, guys, where you literally have the weakness of Israel, supposedly. I mean, this little, what am I, a dog that you come at me with sticks? All right, it looks and appears weak, coming against the strength of the Philistines. We'll measure it right here. We'll see, because what does David say? I come to you not in the power of of shield, sword, you know, uh, any of, of the things that are normal. I come to you in the power of the name of the Lord. And he is going to win in that power. And he is demonstrating that power. He's not demonstrating the power of a young shepherd with a sling. He's demonstrating the power of the Lord. The Elisha showdown. Remember when Elisha has his servant and the Syrian army comes out? I mean, it's a showdown right there. You have two against an army and guess who wins? The two, because they're going to demonstrate the power of God. Elisha is going to speak and strike them all blind. The entire army goes blind, all right? So I don't know if you guys need any more convincing. God wins. The Stanley Dale showdowns. I mean, all throughout Stanley Dale's beginnings with the Yali people, it's showdown after showdown after showdown. Remember, and I read in, in a previous episode where he at the very beginning they march out to basically say you know we're going to kill you and they're staying on the other side of the river and so he looks over there and he goes oh so i'm going to call your bluff and he goes walking straight across all by himself against an entire army of yali soldiers armed to the teeth with their bows drawn aimed at him and stares him straight in the face and walks right into their midst it's like who does that someone who knows the god that they serve the Don Richardson showdowns. Uh, there's some great showdowns in uh, Peace Child. One of them specifically is their practice of if they if the witch doctor declared that someone was dead, well then they would bury him, even if he was still alive. And but once the witch doctor declared that the life had departed, so even and there was this one guy that was in the tribe that was still alive. Don Richardson's feeling his pulse. It's like this guy's alive, and they're like, no, he's dead. He's like, no, he's not. <laughs> and so it was a showdown to basically say, you give him to me and I will show you that my God can heal him. And so Don Richardson's saying, what have I done? Now my God has to heal him. What if he, my, and so it was a, it's a great story. Okay, well, I'm not going to give that away. You guys have to read the book, Peace Child. Uh, he lives, okay? <laughs> uh, sorry, guys, I shouldn't have done that to you, right? Now I ended up giving it away. Now you don't even need to read the book. And the showdown in Hashima Village, which is what we're going to cover today. This is the Rat Tooth Showdown that I mentioned earlier. I should have called it the Rat Tooth Showdown here. Uh, So this is an auto-coning story. Uh, I know that you guys have been going through some auto-coning messages. Uh, I think you did last night too, didn't you? Uh, And those are just so delightful. And they feel so different than uh, the rest of the stories. Like when you're hearing about Stanley Dale, it's so serious when you're hearing about Don Richardson, it's very serious, and then you hear Otto Koenig and you laugh the whole time, that you sometimes don't recognize how dangerous it was where they're at, it's just because of his sense of humor, which is great, and it's so uh, refreshing to think of it through the lens of humor and uh, laughter as well. And so he shares this story, which is a very serious story, but the way he shares it is so delightful and fun that you don't feel it as seriously as it probably was. So we'll call this The Showdown in Ashima Village, the story of Donnie missionary Garatwe Atoya, as related by missionary Otto Koning. So Otto and Carol Koning are going to be somewhere near uh, Don and Carol Richardson in Erie and Jaya, same time period, they were friends, and uh, they have some great stories. So if you've never heard the pineapple story and all, I think there's like 20 different episodes in that series, they are delightful, they are funny, they are spiritually enriching and so my family will usually go through those at least once a year and they're they're just really uh fun so this is a lesser known story that he shares but i'll walk through it i'll see if this works because i'm actually going to sort of tell the story in slides like each slide will have sort of a uh, a piece of the story otto and carol Koning are struggling to keep up with the demands on them they need help so they're overwhelmed they have all these villages and there's a great stirring of need and so they can't uh, help, but there's no more American missionaries to come in. So as a result, the Indonesian or the Irian Jayan Christians that are now being awakened and stirred and built up in the faith, are like, hey, we could actually be missionaries. The Donis realize that they are ready to be sent out to serve the other tribes of Irian Jaya. All 40 of the Donny pastors and their wives sat in a circle and discussed the Konings' great need. The elder of the group of Donnie pastors stood up and asked, who should go? He first asked all of the 40 pastors if they were willing to go. Every one of them declared yes. So 40 pastors, all ready to to go as missionaries, every single one of them said they were willing to go. Then he asked all of the wives if they were willing to leave everything familiar and go with their husbands. Every one of them declared yes. The elder then told them to be still, to pray and ask God who among them should go. The entire group asked, prayed, and listened. So there's 40 of them and their wives, and they all are still and they're praying and they're asking God who it is in this group that is supposed to go. And they're genuinely expecting God to tell them, right? Everything about this uh, indicts us as the American church, okay? Could you imagine if I I brought up just... A need that there was in the world, and it was a pretty intense one, and you might lose your life in meeting the need. And I just said, who of you are willing to go? And all of you immediately raise your hand. And then I say, okay, let's pray which one of us is supposed to go. I mean, just boom, right there. Eh? If, we're, if we mean it that we're ready to go, then let's go. And so that's what they do. Then the elder asked for those that heard a clear answer from God to come forward. Then he asked on the count of three for all of them to say the name God had laid on their hearts so, so that no one is, you know, they don't hear someone else say it, so they all come forward, and on the count of three, they're, they're supposed to say the name that God spoke to them. Well, that's an interesting way of doing it. On the count of three, the entire group all said the exact same name, Gatatwea-Toya. So you imagine Gatatwea is like, whoa, wow. The elder looked at Gatatwea and asked, when can you go? Godotwe answered, I'll be ready to go tomorrow morning. Wow. Talk about a position of readiness. is like the first missionary to be sent out, and he's already ready to go. Godotwe had a wife and three children, and all five of them were ready to go. Godotwe was assigned to a village called Hashima, four villages away from the Konings. He had 39 pastors and their wives back in the Ballium Valley Valley praying for him constantly. Could you imagine being sent out as a missionary from the Donnies and all of them were ready to go, but God chose Gotatwe, and all 39 of the remaining ones are praying for him all day long every day. I mean, it's a pretty cool system. Everything in Hashima was new to Gatotwe. See, we think well, he's a missionary to his own country. That's not that hard. Different language? Different people, different customs, everything about the situation was different. It was a different part of Irian Jaya. They didn't grow the same food, so it was a different diet, too. He was in a foreign country as far as he was concerned. Everything in Ashima was new to Gatotwe, the food, the culture, the smells, the climate, and the language. This is quite a, a shift. Gatotwe always smiled. He was always happy. He was in a new culture, one foreign to him, but it didn't stop him from being a constant beam of joy in the midst of the tribe. He started learning the basics of the tribal language. He planted a garden with sweet potatoes. That's what he was used to eating. They didn't have sweet potatoes down there, so everyone's watching him plant these things known as sweet potatoes. The village was enthralled with him. That is all but one. The witch doctor despised him and wanted to destroy Gatotoy. I mean, I don't blame you. You know, if you're a witch doctor, I cannot think of a greater threat than Atoya. I mean, this guy is the last one you'd ever want uh, to come into your village because he's going to expose what you do as a fraudulent thing, that it doesn't have the same power as the gospel. So you're going to be run out of business pretty quick here by this guy. So I can understand that. One day, the witch doctor of Hashima la- lashed out at Godetoy by stealing one of his chickens, killing it, and eating it. Now, some of us are like, oh, wow, that's lashing out. But that was, spiritually speaking, he was, in a sense, cursing him even by doing that. This is a big, big statement in the village, okay, that the, that the witch doctor would do this. Oh, whoa, this is a big deal. The matter was brought before the village chief to arbitrate. The village chief and the people of Hashima were disappointed with the behavior of their witch doctor. <laughs> the chief declared, we need to work this out. He turned and looked at Gatatwe and asked, Gotatwe, is it true that he stole one of your chickens? Gatatwe said, yes, it is true. The chief said, to bring justice to this matter, we rule that the transgressor, the witch doctor, should give Gautatwe two chickens for the one he stole, killed, and ate. I mean, hey, that's justice, right? He he stole, killed, killed and ate one chicken, so the witch doctor has to give him two in return. That'll teach him. Then the chief looked at Gautatwe and asked, is this okay with you? Gautatwe replied, no. The chief inquired, why not? Gautatwe said, because I don't want his chickens. (laughs) I mean, who would want a witch doctor's chickens? <laughs> the chief and the people of Hashima were stunned. Who wouldn't want two chickens? The chief asked Gadotwe, well then, what do you want as repayment? Gotatwe declared, I want the man. The chief asked, what do you mean? Gotatwe pointed at the witch doctor and stated, I want him. Everyone was confused by this request, so Gadotwe clarified. Gadotwe said, I want him to bring his bag of witchcraft here out into the open. Everyone gasped, because the bag of witchcraft never saw the light of day. Gadotwe continued, I want him to bring out his bag of witchcraft into the light. The people could hardly comprehend such an action. A tremor went through the entire village. The demons, they thought, were sure to be against such a maneuver and would strike out in vengeance. Godotwe continued, I want him to bring the bag and set it right here, and then I will take God's book and I will lay it beside it. Oh, guys, this is getting good. See, you're like one of the tribal people. You're like leaning in going, well, you know, I wasn't sure about bringing out the bag, but now that you're bringing the book out and setting them next to each other, now this is where the human intrigue side awakens. Like, Oh, this is a showdown. It was a showdown. And though the people of Hashima were scared of the ramifications, they were also very intrigued to see what would happen. So the chief, sensing the public support of this strange idea, commanded the witch doctor to bring out his bag of witchcraft. The witch doctor cried out in horror at the thought and declared that the demons would do terrible things to Gatatwe as a result of this request. But the witch doctor brought out the bag and he set it down on a flat surface defined by Gatatwe. Gatatwe sat his Donny translation of the Bible next to the witch doctor's bag. Everyone leaned in with anticipation. What was going to happen? which was the greater power. Godotwe kneeled on the ground and picked up the strange bag of witchcraft. And then to everyone's shock and dismay, he dumped it all out in front of everyone. These were things that no one, it shouldn't say no, it's a K-N-O-W, no one had laid eyes on. Even the witch doctor wouldn't look upon these sacred spiritual fetishes. But now they were strewn out all over the surface next to Godotwe's Bible. In the pile were fish bones, pig fats, tree bark, rotten berries, and rat teeth. Gautetwe started with the tree bark. He picked it up and stuck it in his mouth. He stuck it in his mouth. The tribespeople gasped in horror. Gautetwe bit down on the tree bark and broke it in pieces and then spat it on the ground. Then one by one, he put each of the bizarre fetishes in his mouth and chewed on them, demonstrating that he believed they were powerless over him. This is, I know, it ranks up as one of the most disgusting things ever done, right? However, in this realm that we are walking in, in Irian Jaya, to do this is so unthinkable because to these people, these things really do have power, and these things really are sacred, and demonic powers, dark powers, they call them dark spirits, would retaliate if you ever did this. There's no way Gaudetwe can live through this. They're, I mean, they know that. They're all convinced. It's like, he's, he's killing himself. He, it's a death wish. Everyone anticipated Godotwe falling over dead. They declared, you are going to die. You are going to die. But nothing happened to him. Everyone stood totally amazed. Then after biting on every one of these strange pieces of witchcraft, Godotwe grabbed up his Bible and declared to the witch doctor, now, As you have seen me handle your witchcraft, you must hold God's book. Imagine how terrifying that would be. The witch doctor turned white and pled with Gattatwe. No, no, no! But the people demanded that he do what Gattatwe required, so the witch doctor had to hold the book of Gattatwe's God. Oh, wow, what a moment! After a short while, Gattatwe grabbed back the book from the witch doctor and stated, if you steal any more chickens, I'm going to make you hold the book of my God again. (laughs) The witch doctor declared emphatically, I won't steal any more chickens. He was scared of that book. Up to this point, Gautetwe was still alive. But the tribe still believed Gautetwe couldn't hang on much longer after handling all those things meant to stay in the darkness. They watched him closely, expecting him to keel over with some ailment at any minute. The next morning the tribe was waiting expectantly outside his yoga to see if Gatatwe was still alive. Strangely, he was still alive. But they didn't believe it. So, you know, that there must be something like he's he's probably sick to his stomach and he couldn't eat. So he has his, says Gatatway had his wife fix him a meal and then ate it in front of the village to show them that he was untouched by the dark powers that superintended those items of witchcraft. Everyone marveled and wondered at the power that Gotatwe's God possessed. The witch doctor came the next day and began working in Gatotwe's yard. He got new sticks to replace the ones he had broken in his chicken pen. Every day he showed up to serve Gatotwe. At first it was because he feared needing to ever hold God's book again, but soon it was because he desired to know the God that book revealed. He was convinced, as was the rest of the Hashima village, that the God of Gatotwe was greater than the demons their people had served for the past thousands of years. So I want you to ponder what just happened, because that's what we could call a showdown. And it is something that we don't fully understand in in North America, why that was necessary there. But that was the language that that tribe needed. And that tribe is going to be convinced of what? The power of God. What was it that convinced them? It wasn't even just Tway's words. It was the power of God that is winning them. What won that witch doctor? In a strange way, it was the power of God. God fearlessness in regards to the enemy's power with a confidence that the power of his God was greater is a demonstration, and we as Christians, without even raising people from the dead and multiplying fishes and loaves and walking on water can demonstrate the same thing every day of our life. If we cower before the powers of this earth, what are we showing? We're showing that those powers are greater. We're Christians, but we cower? That doesn't make any sense. How about we be Christians and we rise up and show fearlessness in the face of it and bite the bark and spit it out? It's like, no, that, I don't tremble before that. But it's a pandemic! I know, but my God is greater. You see, we behave differently than this world. And that is part of the answer to what this is in Scripture. I think that the fuller answer is actually greater than most of us have probably ever encountered. But in the most basic way for us to take an elementary school step in it, it's us actually believing that our God is greater than the bark, than the rat teeth, than the pig bones, than the pig fat in that witch doctor's bag. We believe that our God is greater. We believe that our God could protect us. Now, I'm a little disgusted of sticking, you know, rat tooth in my mouth and chewing on it a little and then spitting it out and to make that point. It's like I would rather just hold it up and say, see, this has no power over me. But would we be willing to handle those things in front of this culture to say, this has no power over me? Godotwe wanted the man, and because of his faith, his love, his courage, and his joy, he got that man. That man became a believer. That's an incredible story. It really is, but when you try and measure how it unfolded, what you see is this missionary named Godotwe, who was probably not as learned as you are in the understanding of scriptures, but he seemed to know something that many of us don't know, the power of God. When you live in a in a culture of spiritism, you have to know the power of God. Godotoi himself was probably won by understanding the power of God. And as a result, when he's communicating the gospel, he knows the significance of the showdown. He knows the significance of the power of God in bringing that convincing evidence. We have grown up in a generation that hasn't walked in that. And so as a result, if it, we didn't require it. We were just convinced because the gospel was the true message, and the Holy Spirit worked in and through that. However, there is something that I want us to embrace, and that is what Paul teaches in this. If we really believe what Paul is saying, then we're going to say, okay, God, even though I don't fully understand what that looks like and how that works, I want a little more Godotoi inside of me. I want a little more of what's inside of him and his understanding that would cause him to respond, not just to receive two chickens. But to say, no, I don't want those chickens. I want, I'm going after bigger fish here. I want that man. What do you mean by that? Have him bring out his bag of witchcraft. Dump it out of the open. I'm going to put that bark in my mouth, chew it up, and spit it out. You know that in this time period, one of the most common things they would do when they would come into a village and be one for Christ, it was they would end up using that witch doctor's house ultimately as the basis for the mission that was being built there. It was this direct statement of saying, okay, where was the center of the demonic activity? We're gonna take that and claim it for our king. We're gonna use that as our center. That's where we're gonna have our healing, like our our medical shop, or that's where we're gonna have our, our prayer. In other words, they're going to take it and stake claim to it and say, our God is greater. And that attitude, that mindset is very significant in your life. You have pockets of your life where the devil has worked against you. But to actually rise up, and have a showdown in your own soul. Say, no, that's enough. I'm gonna take that very territory and we're gonna make that the center of where I proclaim God's power to this generation. Right there. In that weakness in my life, God used that area to proclaim your glory. The power hinge. The audience turns on the evidence. This is like the hinge. This is where an audience can turn. Just like we see in Elijah's day. The Lord... He is the God. When they see that fire come down from heaven, whoa, they are convinced there is something that is speaking a language to them to say, Do you see it, Israel? The same is true for all of us. Do we see it? This world needs to have the power of God once again revealed on this earth. We are a slumbering nation, we need an awakening. And for us as the body of Christ to agree with God and say, it's not just us polishing our words. We need God to work in and through us as the church in a powerful way. Acts 28. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. So when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he has escaped the sea, yet justice is not allowed to live. But he shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Obviously, it seems like a very unstable people, right? And yet at the same time, what is this? What is Paul doing? It's not with words. He is demonstrating the power of God. And in this situation, it's not that he even manufactured it. He's just behaving as Paul with a confidence that his God is greater. He's not going down with a viper bite. Come on. He has a calling upon his life. He's called to stand before Caesar in Rome. Come on, get this crazy thing off my hand. And as a result, because of his faith, because of his boldness, because of his courage, because of his nonchalance towards the enemy's power, His lack of care, he doesn't believe the enemy has any ability to harm him, let alone a viper. He has authority over that viper. He knows it and he walks in it and this becomes a testimony to those natives. Where those natives are like, whoa! They think he's a murderer because he was bit. Now they think he's a god. Obviously there needs to be something in between that they realize is that he is serving the grand god of the universe that enables him to live in such an impermeable, impervious way to all that would try and stop him in his mission. It's an incredible reality that we serve the living God. We oftentimes have a Christianity that is, has correct doctrine, but it fails to realize that this is a living faith, that we, have, we are participating in the lineage of a great cloud of men and women that have gone before us that have lived boldly, that have done exploits on this world and in this world that have shocked nations. This is the heritage that we've been grafted into. But for us to recognize that we need to, like Paul, cherish weakness and not try and be the great convincer ourselves, but allow God to convince the world in and through our humility, in and through our love, even through our givenness, and through our faith, I believe my God will do it. So as we move forward, how can we take a little of that Stanley Dale and stick it in us, that Guaratea Atoya inside of us, that Don Richardson inside of us, that Elijah, that David, that Job, that Moses inside of us that is willing to stand firm and strong knowing that our God is greater, than all the powers of this earth. We need to know that. Not just theoretically, but we need to know that at the depths of our being and live it out. Going enthusiastically, this is, by the way, the missionary motto of Stanley Dale, which has been at the end of every single one of our 14 episodes so far. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. And then we have the Stanley Dale prayers, uh, which we're up to 14 now. And so I'll just read them through because they're good, guys. This, this This is like a really powerful thing. If we're praying these sorts of prayers, you know, good things happen. First one, Lord, prepare me for the heavenly call. Number two goes with the second message. Lord, refine my taste buds for all heavenly delicacies. Number three, Lord, season me, toughen me, and prepare me for all difficulty. Number four, Lord, may I be preoccupied with that which preoccupies you. Number five, Lord, may I uncover that which is in the thicket for my Sawi tribe. Number six, Lord, may I be a doer and not just a hearer. Number seven, Lord, show me clearly that I am never out of your sight. Number eight, Lord, may I stand when others sit. Number nine, Lord, fill me with your spirit of boldness. Number 10, Lord, open my eyes that I may see. Number 11, Lord, burden me with what burdens you. Number 12, Lord, show me my role in this grand adventure. Number 13, which was yesterday's message, Lord, convert my weakness into strength. And 14, Lord, reveal your power to this generation. Father, <clears throat> I ask that you would build that Guadatoya Toya mentality, faith, courage, and strength inside of us. Lord, may we smile like he smiled. May we have that same joy in our heart. May we be fearless before all the taunts of the enemy. And when the enemy steals one of our chickens, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know better than to hold a grudge and try and just get earthly justice. But may we go after the heavenly solution to it. We want the man. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be instructed through this and that we would be emboldened Lord, to be made ready for the miniature showdowns that we have the opportunity to participate in every day. Lord, it's in the precious name of Jesus that we ask this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this.